some Jewish wisdom. If you can figure this one out anyway. A married couple having a very difficult time with each other. They disagree on something having to do with the religious scriptures and are fighting over it. It gets worse and worse. So they go to the rabbi to resolve the dispute. And the rabbi and the assistant rabbi go into a room and first the wife comes in and gives her side to it. And the rabbi listens very, very carefully, pauses for a long time, and then very thoughtfully after she finishes says, you know, you're right. So she just feels wonderful, really happy, and she leaves. And the husband comes in. You already understand. (laughs) And he gives his side. And the rabbi again listens very meditatively, very thoughtfully, or non-thoughtfully. Pauses and then says, you know, you're right. So the husband walks out and he feels great. But the assistant rabbi feels terrible. (laughs) He's just very confused. And he turns to the rabbi and says, you know, you said she was right and you said he was right. They can't both be right. And the rabbi pauses for a long time and says, says, you know, you're right too. Uh, What I'd like to do as we move into the, right off into the sunset of this retreat, is uh, sketch out a few very, well, it's probably the least conclusive Dharma talk ever given in the history of Dharma talks. Please keep this story in mind because uh, it's relevant to what follows. I want to give you quite a few examples of different styles of practice and attitudes. And uh, My one hesitation in, in talking about it was that there are some of you who are very new to the practice. And I'm not interested in confusing you. But I do want to stretch our minds a little bit regarding form and attachment to form. So I'd like to just say a few words about playing in form for all of us. My own path has probably... Uh, I know all the teachers at IMS and I have other friends who teach elsewhere. Probably if there were an award for the gypsy, it would go to me. (laughs) By that I mean not who's traveled around the world the most, but who's been with the most teachers. Just take my word for it. I've been with a lot of different teachers (laughs) and done a lot of different practices uh, for a number of years now. And, in fact, always envied Joseph and Sharon who had their nice, simple Burmese trip. You know, just you just do it and 
a few teachers, but all in that same lineage, so nice and coherent. And I always envy them. And here was I, five years in Hinduism, Raja Yoga, Vedanta, Krishnamurti, quite a bit of time with him. Five years in Zen, and then even in, within Vipassana, lots of different teachers and styles of practice. And for quite a while, I experienced it as a curse. Uh, I would have liked to have just had one little perspective and just do it. But that isn't the way it worked for me. And for a while, that was, I had a very, the most rarefied form of dukkha of anyone probably on the planet. My parents love me. I'm in reasonably good health. You know, everything's like, but all these different approaches, which one was the right one? The best one, the most, the quickest one, the most natural one, the one most relevant for our time and time and age. And there were usually a few, usually two, vying with each other. For for a long time, it was Krishnamurti versus Buddhism. Krishnamurti lost. <laughs> he, he died too. <laughs> Whoever we talk about, just, they just die right off. <laughs> That's an in-joke for those of you who have not been here the other evenings. <laughs> uh, but a few years ago, it ended. That, in other words, it was it, the curse part ended, and that kind of suffering. And uh, it started to come together, not because of any intellectual understanding, but because of s- some experiential grasping of what uh, was going on. Let me give you an understa- uh, some sense of what I mean. And this will just be a sample tonight. Let's take the, the first one that comes to mind. How about walking, the walking meditation? Slow, right? We do a lot of slow. If you work with Burmese teachers, slower than what we've suggested. But you know, we encourage you to slow down a nice contemplative gait. Take one natural walk a day, and that would be, that's been suggested. But by and large, people are slowly making their way around here. And on other retreats, even slower. And the benefits of that are obvious, I think, to many people. And the particular traditions will talk about why it's good to do slow walking. Great. But I practiced at a monastery in Korea where the way we practiced, we would sit for 50 minutes and then someone would hit, make a very loud sound and then you would get up from your cushion as quickly as you could. I mean, if your legs were asleep, it took a moment or two, and then run around the room. (laughs) Really, at top speed. And then someone would hit a clapper and then a clapper with two pieces of wood and then... drop that and just go right into the sitting posture and you go through the day that way. And that was, well, which one is right? Is slow good or fast good? And they would say, well, fast. Uh, This way you sit and then when you hear that clap, drop it. It isn't even a beautiful sound. It's not like a nice Japanese bell. It's a very loud sound, jarring intentionally to get you out of the sitting. Let go of the sitting. Let go of that kind of exquisite 
almost aesthetic peace when, it, when, that, when those times come. And just take off and just run. And then you hear the clapper and then you stop. And then you sit down. Let go of the running. Okay, I learned something from it. And that was before I was exposed to Vipassana and I got all the, the slow walking. It seemed very strange because I had had that. And then there's a case made for the slow walking, the minute kinds of observation that you could make. The subtle kinds of noticing that come about are much easier when you move slowly, very slowly. Probably you've noticed some of that. If you go to some monasteries in Thailand, they talk a lot about walking at a natural pace. Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mahabhua, and so forth, the Thai forest school. Uh, they laugh at the Burmese style, and the Koreans laugh at the Burmese style. I remember being with two Burmese monks when they saw some Vipassana students walking very slowly, and they had to fight back giggles. They, it was so strange to them. And yet, uh, what they do is not to them. And in Thailand, you get another, another position also, a little bit condescending about the slowing. Why slow so much? Natural is good. And so you do the walking meditation, even formal walking meditation, they encourage you to walk at a natural pace. Now, if you naturally become very slow, that's all right. It's not like it's banned. But then there's a whole very convincing description of why that's good. That is, if you can become mindful while walking naturally, that transfers very easily into daily life. Where slow doesn't. I don't know which one is right. Eating. You can go from one monastery to another and some one meal is a sign of real purity, real spiritual dedication. One meal a day. In others, it's two meals a day. If you go to Thich Nhat Hanh, it's three meals a day. Which one do you want? Is one more holy than the other? Three meals, not holy. One meal, very spiritual. But it, <laughs> There is some suggestion of that. In other words, that, that's what is implied. Is it all just arbitrary? Irrelevant? Is it highly significant? Can one meal be something quite important, an important piece in practice? If it's three meals, does that mean that your practice is really way off? Sleep. You already heard about the uh, approach where you stay up for one week in Korea. That isn't taught so much here, but if you work with some... Uh, uh, <laughs> should we try it? <laughs> I don't think we get any takers. If we put in the IMS brochure... <laughs> Let's say a two-week retreat, uh, middle time, in the middle, after the first seven days, uh, seven days without sleep, seven straight days without sleep. <laughs> Cost, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> Upandita encourages you to, uh, as the retreat unfolds, to try to get down to four hours sleep. 
maximum. And it's considered important. That is, you're even asked in interviews, as I understand. And, um, how many hours did you sit? How many hours did you walk? How many hours did you sleep? There are other teachers in Thailand. If you would ask Ajahn Chah, if you ask Thich Nhat Hanh, they'll never give you a number. They won't say uh, four hours or bring it down. Ajahn Chah would be the same with food, would say, how do I know? How do I know how many hours sleep you should have? How do I know how much food you should eat? That's your job. And there, what they're encouraging you to do is to develop a kind of sensitivity so that you get enough sleep that you don't oversleep, but you also don't undersleep. Both can make the mind wacky. And so that's really extolled. You see what I mean? It's the, and it keeps going. I'm just getting warmed up. What else do we have? We have sleep. We have food. Good meditation objects. Keep your eyes open or closed. If you listen to Japanese teachers, uh, the only way to sit, the way the Buddha sat, is with the eyes half closed. If you come to uh, Japanese Zen teachers, uh, and maybe Mahayana teachers in general, Theravadan teachers, it's okay, close your eyes. And the teachers who say your eyes should be open say, if your eyes are closed, you'll tend to get sleepy and daydream a lot. But that doesn't happen to me. I like to sit with my eyes closed. I don't mean I never daydream or get sleepy, but it doesn't seem to be particularly influenced by my eyes being closed. But then some of the Theravadan teachers will say, but if your eyes are half open, it's too stimulating. You'll be distracted. That, that does sound right. Where's the best place to follow the breath? If you go to Mahabhuas, it's the chest, the heart. That's the seat of the mind in Buddhism, the heart. Chitta is there, right here, the, the physical locus. If you work with some of the Mahasi Saido teachers, it's the abdomen. And a good many teachers, perhaps most, it's the nose. And now there are others, if you're doing Anapanasati, there's also the whole, the whole breath and the whole body. Which one do you want? I remember some years ago, Sansanim, who is a Korean Zen master, who some of you know, who's the, the teacher that I referred to when I refer to Korea. And uh, he was giving a talk one night. And someone asked a question, and I can't remember the, the details, but they were very confused. And they said, I've read in this tradition that there are four stages to enlightenment. I've read in another where there are eight stages to enlightenment. Another there are, let's say, 12 stages to enlightenment. What's, the, what's right? What's the right answer? And Sansanin looked at him and said, how many do you want? <laughs> and his broken English said, you want four? I give you four. <laughs> you want 12? I give you 12. <laughs> it's okay.
It keeps going. Money. Regarding monks, in some orders, the monks are not allowed to touch money or can receive it in very special ways, like in envelopes or... Uh, usually it's handled by lay people. And other monks, a lot of the Tibetans, handle money very comfortably. And some of the Zen teachers, they don't seem to feel it's a problem. But most Theravadan teachers don't handle money, or well, lots of them don't. Implying what? That money is a problem, potentially at least. It makes, a lot of, makes for a lot of suffering. Or that it's dirty, or it shouldn't be touched, or that... It's definitely something very highly charged and complicated. And we know that's true. Money makes for a lot of suffering. It's not just for monks and nuns. Either we have too much of it, or we don't have enough of it. Well, if if some of the Tibetan monks that I spend time with who handled money, they didn't seem less pure than the other monks who didn't handle the money. They didn't seem more pure either. They just seem to be pure monks who handle money. And the other was pure monks who didn't handle money. But there is definitely a, a, a coloration to it or an attitude that somehow if you don't have money or that is to keep a healthy distance from money, less money equals more spirituality. Do you think that's true? Have you found that to be true? Poor is beautiful. Rich is no good. Something in those green pieces of paper, you touch it and just suddenly you're diseased or something. (laughs) How about sex? A very big one, relationship. Often in some lineages what, what is implied is that certainly if you're a monk or a nun, uh, sex is not allowed. Although in, in some orders in Japan, monks marry. Does that make them less holy? And then you can get points of view. Points of view like, at a certain depth of practice, you can't possibly be interested in sex. That quite naturally falls away. But then you get other points of view, tantric points of view, which see that, that itself is attachment and go beyond that. Or you have to really be free enough to then come all the way back and uh, it's fine. In fact, they have some of the great masters where if you looked from the outside, they'd be like regular people. But they'd done years of intensive training. If you put money, sex, and food together, those three, just those three, There's no question that an enormous amount of suffering has gone on because we don't know how to handle or we don't know how to use those energies. Most of us either overeat or undereat or don't have enough money or have too much money. Sexual energy, relationship, very, very difficult, it seems, for everyone, most people. And yet, you hear different views. One view is that it's through relationship, if you make it into a practice, that you can really grow. Because it brings up a lot of things that don't come up if you're not in relationship. You can kid yourself if you're just doing sitting and walking 
kind of coasting along, breathing in, breathing out, feeling nice and calm. But try doing that and being in a relationship. Know what I mean? (laughs) You do know what I mean. And it's often implied, you know, look, if you're serious about spirituality, forget about relationship. Can't you see men are put here to torture women and women are put here to torture men? Just make it totally complicated. Just drop it all. Sometimes graphic meditation devices are used to help us. Visualizing, let's say, the sex that you're attracted to is going inside the body and seeing that the body is made up of what? Bags of urine and pus and feces and blood, phlegm, mucus. That's what's in here, you know. It's It's in you too. Turn you right off. Make a real celibate out of you for about five minutes. <laughs> then the fantasies, then the VR start. Vipassana romance for the new people. Boy. So who do you listen to and what do you do? The schedule is the schedule. The schedule is your teacher. You've heard us say that. And yet we've made quite a few exceptions as we get to know you. How about the late night sitting? We've encouraged you to sit late, you know, after tea. Is it automatically good to stay up? You can see I do have a bias. I'm in with sort of the Ajahn Chah, Thai, Thich Nhat Hanh, sort of Krishnamurti was very much that way as well. Uh, to develop sensitivity to what your needs are. That is, rather than using an absolute kind of form, to develop the kind of sensitivity which enables you to know when what you're doing is coming out of wisdom and when it's coming out of either laziness or greed. And so the form of, let's say, sitting later than the last sitting for one person could be just more development of greed and ego And for another person, breaking through certain patterns that are very limiting, having to do with laziness, having to do with all kinds of things that keep the person stuck. And it could change from night to night. And so that requires a very careful listening to know when to go to sleep and when to stay up, when to stop eating and when to keep eating, how to handle money, how to be in a relationship. How much sleep you need. You have to really pay attention. You have to learn. You are your own research project. And these principles are good. These forms are useful. By the way, in saying that I favor that, I am not saying that, let's say, a teaching where you're strongly encouraged to sleep less than four hours or four, I'm not saying that that's not good. Because I've seen that be very helpful too. I saw the one week without sleep be very helpful. I don't advocate it. So what I'm trying to to do as the retreat comes to an end is um, sensitize you 
to the fact that there are forms, all kinds of forms in life, and, and certainly spiritual forms, and that we get conditioned to them, and that as useful as they are, we also have to see what they are. Let me give you an example. One more to back up on, on the, the different schools of Buddhism. Those of you who've been involved in Buddhism for a while, you probably, I don't know, but some of you, I think, know this. That uh, from the Mahayana point of view, that is in the Zen and Tibetan schools, the Theravadans are sometimes seen as selfish. That is, all you care about is your own enlightenment. Because the verbal teaching has much more of an emphasis, tremendous emphasis on freeing yourself. The Mahayana verbal teaching has to do with freeing yourself in order to liberate all beings. Bodhicitta is a, a motive, primary motive in that lineage. Is It's simultaneous. Your motive for attaining enlightenment is to liberate everyone else. And so, from one point of view, you look at the Theravadans, they, they sound like these selfish little people just running to their cushion meditating you know, elbowing everyone else out of the way. They don't care about the rest of the planet as long as they get their enlightenment. Numero uno. Me first, Mac, or whatever that phrase was. But if you go to really good Theravadan monasteries, that's hardly what it feels like. I'll give you an example. Uh, Mahabua, which is very orthodox, straight Theravadan teaching, classical in, in many respects, most respects, so they don't talk very much about saving beings and bodhicitta. They don't talk about that at all. But if you live there, you start to see, for example, incredible kindness. Uh, for example, Mahabua himself grew up in a rural, he grew up in that a very small village that the monastery was built in. And he was a subsistence, a child of a subsistence farming family, which meant they had very little to they just had enough to, to, to eat, not, not much more than that. And so it was natural to kill squirrels for food, and he killed many, many squirrels. And then as he grew up and became a monk, he became repulsed with what he had done. He felt uh, great remorse at having killed so many squirrels. And so when they started this monastery, uh, the, the place is crawling with squirrels. And he's built a fence around the monastery, and the reason he built a fence around the monastery is that the villagers would come onto the monastery grounds and kill squirrels. And so he has this fence, which it's a squirrel sanctuary. And they're just it's deafening. By the way, if you think you go to these you know, tropical paradise, Thailand, I haven't been to Burma, so I don't know. Uh, it's much noisier than Times Square. I mean, it's just deafening with these wild chickens clucking all the time and the squirrels and rats running on the tin roofs. It's really quite a, quite a scene going on there. There are beautiful palm trees and it's green, but it's very noisy. Very, so the squirrels are taken care of. Food is put out. Of course, the squirrels really have a good deal there. And you start to notice that uh, 
those of you who are new may not know this, the monks make rounds early in the morning and the villagers give the monks food. You know, the monks go with bowls and are given food. And I, I would go on the rounds uh, each day and uh, the first few days it was incredibly moving. And it always was really, but when you see it for the first time, some of the people are so poor. They like wear the same t-shirt every day and uh, live in shacks and they're out there with food for the monks and with just a lot of love as they, they, they give the monks food and the monks give them teaching. It's that kind of an exchange. But what happens is all of the food is gathered and then it's brought back to the monastery and then the monks divide the food up among themselves and anyone else who's there, lay people who are practicing and so forth. And then for the first week or so, we'd see these young boys with big baskets running out of the monastery. And what would happen is, after the food was distributed, if there was any left over, it was immediately recycled back into the village. It was kind of a, a natural welfare system so that people could give food and feel good about giving something to the monks, but no one went hungry because the food would come right back. Also, at one point, the king offered Mahabua a lot of money to build uh, what we would call a pagoda, a chedi, a gold one. I really wanted to make an extraordinary one. Mahabua turned it down. First of all, he felt the building would make too much noise and the really serious meditating monks would leave. Uh, but also he felt, wouldn't the money be better spent adding a wing to the children's hospital in town? So that's what they did. Now, they don't talk about it much, but they're very much... Uh, you could never, I couldn't fault any of the Theravadan teachers I've had in terms of generosity, in terms of the, their willingness to give of whatever they have. Nor the Mahayana, the Zen and the Tibetans are extraordinarily, extraordinarily generous as well. What I'm trying to get at is go to the essence of things. The forms are not necessarily... If you get attached to form, you may make conclusions about the way things are, which just are, are not true. Views and opinions about anything, if they're attached to, are very dangerous. It's one of the last things to go in enlightenment. Attached, attachment to, no more attachment to any views or opinions. I got a very, very big lesson in form. Attachment to form. The first time I went to Asia... When I was uh, growing up, when I was very young, like most, a lot of American boys, little boys, I loved being a cowboy. And I had finally one of the happiest days of my life. Is my Aunt Esther gave me a present of a cowboy outfit with two six-shooters and chaps and a big hat. Tom Nick's hat. And I would put it on and I knew who I was. I was a cowboy and it felt great. And I would walk around the house pulling my guns quickly. Not unusual. And it kept me happy for about six months or a year. And then, of course, went on to the next piece of identity equipment, the next outfit. Because I had outgrown that. That was childish. And it became a baseball outfit, and, you know, etc. This one time, sitting in a, in, a, in a zendo, a meditation hall, in a monastery, 
in Asia, and we had these very big robes, and everyone was walking around. Uh, it's it very formal and very stylized and very beautiful, including me, you know, walking around with certain things you do with the cushions and bowing and bells going off and incense. And uh, certainly for Westerners, the, being in such very big flowing robes, it felt very important and exotic, and we were far out. And then at a certain point, it hit me that uh, then I must have been about 35 or 40. It suddenly hit me. My God, it's, I'm still wearing my cowboy outfit. <laughs> Nothing has changed. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, instead of I'm a cowboy, I'm this big Zen meditator. And it was exactly the same thing. That's how I know who I am. I have an outfit. And if I didn't have my outfit, I wouldn't know who I am. Do you have your outfit? You know, we still, it's still going on. We're more subtle around here. You know, we seem to be ordinary. Okay, so you see what, I, what, I'm, what I'm getting at. Um, well, which one is right? And if you remember, the rabbi said, you're right too. What I've learned from all of this is that really that all of them are right. I don't think I've... There were a few weird forms that I haven't mentioned I won't go into. But just about every training, some very strange breathing that was sort of like... <sighs> you know. But I would say that every practice that I got was valuable. They all were right. I mean, the rabbi is right. They're all right. Each one it was great. It had, some, it had some strength and some limitation. If you sit up for seven days without sleep, you will learn something. Something really valuable comes out of it. Not only just, you know, your ego gets bigger, but aside from the, uh, there's certain meditative, your samadhi is unrecognizable on the other side of that. Either that or you leave or they carry you out in the stretcher. <laughs> yeah. But you pay a price with your body. That is, no, the body very clearly said, look, maybe the mind is benefiting from this seven days of no sleep training, but I don't like it. That's the body talking. Well, who cares what you, whether you like it or not? We're heading for something that's more important than what you think. This is the mind talking to the body. Personally, I don't favor that approach. I feel I, I like to see it all as, you know, a happy family working together. <laughs> but there's no, no question there were benefits. You can benefit from walking slow, from walking naturally, from walking fast. You want one meal, three meals, two meals, all vegetables. The Tibetans eat meat. Adolf Hitler ate vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> what I would like to suggest is that these forms really are precious. Many of them are very precious and useful, and especially at the beginning, and the beginning really is years, my feeling is that to find some forms, it's not that you have to become totally bound up in forms, but to find some forms that really are useful, uh, even though from a profound point of view, 
they're relative. They're, they're, they don't have inherent meaning. They're forms. They're conventions. They're something that we agree upon to use, and it can be beneficial. But I think to be formless, let's say, there is really no such thing. You make up your own forms, idiosyncratic. But let's say to hand yourself over to different spiritual forms for a period of time can be, I would say for most of us, invaluable and probably necessary. I was with Krishnamurti before I did any forms, and that teaching starts out with, you don't need any form, just be aware. Um, in all, with all love and deference to, to Krishnamurti, who was an extraordinary human being, I found that most of us could have used some form. We were walking around mouthing his words, and perhaps he didn't need form, but we did. But just don't get lost in it. Don't get lost in the forms. Understand that a form is a form, and that if the slow walking is useful, then, of course, by all means... Use it. But if you get attached, you'll know when you get attached because you're threatened by opposites whenever you get attached. Let's say doing, you do three months of slow walking and then you meet your friend who just came back from Thailand. Well, how was your retreat? Oh, we just do natural walking. Natural walking? <laughs> attached. <laughs> because it's the opposite and it threatens you. And any of the attachments are like that. We run into the opposite and it does something to us. That means we've, we've caught on to something in a certain way, a kind of conclusive, total way. And until it wears itself out, if it does, uh, then we're, everything is tenuous. We have, we're distinguishing ourselves by comparing ourselves to those who are not doing what we're doing and we gain a certain power from it. The reason I'm going is I want to lead into now into daily life and to some a few images to leave you with as we, we're not home yet, but we will be home soon. A number of years ago, one of the early three-month retreats here, maybe it was the first or the second, I'm not sure. It was a while ago. Uh, there was someone from Cambridge doing the retreat. I'm from Cambridge. And uh, it was quite impressive. He was doing the slow walking. Uh, if there were awards given for the slow walker of the three-month retreat, he definitely would have gotten it. Not just that he was very slow, but it was ballet. It was just beautiful. And also the eating. Just quite wonderful. I mean, I was really impressed. Uh, about six or seven months later, I was going to a party in Cambridge. <laughs> and someone was walking ahead of me, and it just had this really un- uncoordinated, awkward, you know, it just the walk was proceeding in such a way that it almost made you nervous. You know, from, uh, I didn't know who it was. And when he came to the party, it was him. It was the same person. And I I was really surprised because uh, I had seen him do the slow walking in a certain way. And finally, I couldn't resist, and I brought it up, being a troublemaker (laughs) by nature. Uh, How is it you could be so graceful and harmonious? Are you the same person? Is that your twin or what? I mean, like, 
And he had a, he was wonderful. He had a good sense of humor. And we tried to figure that out because it, it was strange to him too, you know. And then he realized I, what, what he discovered, which I'll share with you, is that what happens is if you walk slow that way, and let's say you have 60, 90, 100 people all walking slow, and there's a Buddha, and even Jesus is here too. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> We're really multiple coverage here. <laughs> It becomes sacred, so that the, this is a, a religious form you, when you're, I'm practicing. So the practice is the slow walking, it gets invested with a certain sanctity. And so it's easy to do it because you're doing something special. This is practice, this is dharma, this is religious. But then you go outside and you're just walking along Massachusetts Avenue in Cambridge, you're just an ordinary joker just walking. There's nothing sacred or precious or holy about that. So we have this split, sacred and profane. There's nothing holy particularly about slow. I don't know if you know that. Slow is just slow. And if you went to the monastery in Korea where they run, I don't think they think that fast is unholy. Probably what they say, fast is fast. Slow is slow. And so the, the whole point is to, to use the forms. Even to see it as sacred is fine. But I think to see it sacred in that way is a mode of practice, perhaps a preliminary, to me, this is my own bias, a preliminary mode of practice. Because to me, the most mature practice, the most mature view of Dharma has to do with wherever you are is a perfect place to practice. And everything is sacred. No exceptions. Now, it may be, I think it's so, that we do have to create certain forms and invest them with this feeling of that they're being special, so that at least temporarily it, we, we take ourselves out of the world where we have suffered so much, the so-called ordinary world, full of noise and meat-eaters and all the rest of it, smokers and all those other bad people. And we gain force by leaving and coming here or some other place and moving into something that by, by virtue of being polarized against the other helps us to release ourselves from certain patterns and to practice. But if that itself becomes an attachment, then you create another kind of schizophrenia. It's non-hospitalizable. No insurance for it either, nothing. But you've created a split in the world. That is, this is holy, this is ordinary. Now, what I would suggest is that the view be something quite different, that when you're in the hall, and if you go to other places where there are more forms, chanting and bowing, to do it with your full heart, of course. Maybe this is the best way there's a, to, to convey what I'm trying to say. There's a Chinese teaching. Something like this. If, if a guest comes to your home... Uh, give the guest total, wholehearted, uh, wonderful treatment. In other words, take really good care of your guest in terms of feeding, entertainment, everything. When your guest leaves and then you go to your meditation room uh, and sit and fold your legs on your cushion and bow to the Buddha and meditate, then do that wholeheartedly. But never ever feel that 
what you're doing in the meditation room is superior to what you just did with your guest. I think it's a very good teaching. Now, it's not an easy one to learn, but what it means is to have, in a sense, what our practice is about is developing infinite respect. Stretching. We see the areas where we're just disrespectful. We're unaware, we're oblivious, we're blasé, sloppy, asleep. And it's all life. Each moment, everything that we encounter is our life. Everything, wherever we are, that's our life in that moment. And the whole beauty to me of mindful living, which is what our practice is about, is to not limit it to the meditation hall or to a walking room or to any special place, monastery, cave, mountain, forest, jungle. To use those settings, they are very beautiful. You can even wear robes, you can be a monk, you can do the whole thing. Freedom really has to do with your inside. So whether we use the forms or not, there are times when using the forms heavily can be extremely important. And there are people who are, are enlightened and are beyond the need for any form, but they still use the forms. Many of, I think, of the good teachers don't need those forms anymore. They use them. It's a kind of devotional gratitude, and it's also to present a way for the next generation of people to come to use those forms. Let me leave you with an image. I don't know if it will help. Because this notion of getting stuck in form, of course, finally, it comes down to things like the cowboy outfit and the Zen outfit and who we think we are and all the ways in which we suffer when people don't see us as being what we think we are and how hard we work to create ourselves as being someone who's acceptable and how much time we spend looking into other people's eyes to find out if we're worthwhile. Am I okay? Am I intelligent, beautiful, handsome, spiritual? I am. And the practice is more and more to uh, release ourselves from that bondage so that the self-respect that we get comes from inside and the only person who can give it to us is ourself. No psychoanalyst, no Buddhist teacher, no husband, wife, lover, Buddha, Jesus. No one can give it to us. Not what I'm talking about. It's something that comes from going deeper and deeper inside and coming to that which needs no vindication. It's not dependent on what other people think. It's self-evident. Whether you call it Buddha nature, whether you call it original nature, whether you call it enlightenment, God-realization, they're all just words. So when we practice, I hope more and more we can use this wonderful gift of mindfulness, such a simple uh, and miraculous, magnificent capacity that we all have to begin with. It's not... It's not given to us. We have mindfulness, just we haven't developed it and seen the full implications of a life of awareness. But when you get out, the same thing with forms is going to go on. Attachment to names and forms, what occupation you have. If it's an occupation with a high status or a low status or people are a professor or a doctor or they're not or they 
uh, dig ditches or drive taxis or, you know, the whole proliferation of how we've created ways to distinguish ourselves from one another. But the way of the Dharma is to let go of all of that. Finally, an arhat, arhant, for those of you who are new, is someone who's finished the journey in this particular, on this particular path that is there just a wee bit below a Buddha. And supposedly one qualification or one uh, way, one characteristic of an arhant is that they don't feel superior to anyone. They don't feel inferior to anyone. And this is a hard one, especially hard for liberals in Cambridge to get. They also don't feel equal to anyone. In other words, they've stepped out of the whole game of you're either up or you're down, you're in the middle. When the mind is clear, that those are all made by the mind. As long as you have a mind that keeps doing that, you're going to have superiors and inferiors and we equals. But when the mind is clear, they're just beings walking, walking around, decked out differently, characterizing themselves differently. The forms will vary infinitely. But the key thing is to go right to the heart, to go deep. The forms have a place. They're necessary. It's not that you have to give up any of the forms. It's more to establish a relationship to form, to know what the difference between a form, to know that forms are conventions. And they can be used and enjoyed. But if you attach to them, then we create a living hell on this planet for each other. In that sense, the rabbi is profoundly right. What is right, you know, you can get justification for almost anything. And what is right can change from moment to moment, from situation to situation, and all the different modes of practice are right for one person at one time, but not not at a later time. And so you don't have to throw the whole form out because you used it and it helped you and now you don't need it any longer. It's okay. You can even bow to it. And so as we go out, if you can live through mindfulness, or it's developed this art of mindful living, that means you become intimate with what you're doing. And... Wherever you are is a perfect place to practice. When you have an opportunity to come to a place like IMS and have such a wonderful, protected, and uh, lovely place to, to do this, to me, very precious practice, then pour yourself into this forum. Walk slowly. You know, whatever the retreat rules are, you know, hand yourself over to it. Sleep four hours, whatever. But when you leave... Be sensitive to where you are next. And what is called for next? What's appropriate next? Because, I keep saying finally, but this really is finally. Uh, Discipline is the heart of the whole thing, but discipline isn't... This is the most important thing I feel I learned from Krishnamurti. What he taught was that most people think discipline 
is getting up early or you know going to the late sitting after tea or not missing one sitting or walking or eating only one meal in our context those are, that's definitely is one way to look at discipline or milita- it's militaristic it can be benign but it's doing something at a certain specified time but what he emphasized was that the real discipline has a lot to do with the, 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 the significance of the word. Discipline has to do with disciple. The hardest discipline of all is what he, re- he would repeat over and over, is the ability to stay awake from moment to moment. Now, that is not dependent on any form. Forms can be used to develop that capacity to be awake. But you can see that that's the crown jewel. If you replace the essence, which is this capacity to stay awake, however you do that, with getting locked into a form and thinking that's it, I think that you will limit the journey for yourself. So I hope we all use the forms that are abundantly available in life. Many of them are quite beautiful. And we also know that we're all, each and every one of us, much more than any form. Can we have a moment of silence, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.